Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. When it comes to the cold, having the right apparel and outerwear that withstands intense temperatures is crucial. My guest today, Penny Brook, Chief Marketing and Experience Officer at Canada Goose, has conquered the cold and is making a difference in sustainable fashion. Helping customers find the warmth they seek since 1957, Canada Goose is globally recognized as a producer of extreme weather outerwear and is continuously making strides to improve the world around us. From parkas to lightweight jackets and now footwear, Canada Goose is committed to keeping the planet cold and the people on it warm with its plans to be net zero emissions by 2025. Penny, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Hi, Aaron. It's very, very exciting to be here with you today. I'm joining you from a very stormy Switzerland, but it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'm just going to kind of jump right in because a core brand ethos for Canada Goose is this motto, live in the open. If you can talk to me a little bit about what that means and how you hope to inspire consumers to truly live in the open now and in the forever, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, live in the open for us more broadly means about living a life boldly and bravely. So if we think about what that means, you know, people will probably jump because it's Canada Goose to the physical, first of all, because we have got this prominence in extreme environments, extreme survival. And actually what we're looking to do now is to really ensure that we're answering both the physical and the emotional. So if we talk about the physical, we're talking now because we're a global brand about addressing multiple environments, not just this extreme cold. You know, you have extreme weather phenomenons, which are extreme rain, wind, you have more sort of humid climate. So as a brand, as we evolve, we have to make sure that we're developing products that suit all of those so that everybody, no matter where they are, can live in the the open from a physical perspective, which is much more pragmatic, but a far richer area for us to really talk about in terms of our storytelling is those people that break barriers, that live in the open from an emotional perspective. And what I get really excited about for our brand is that we can use our brand as a platform for people to tell those stories, for us to represent voices that haven't been heard before and really tell the stories of emotional resilience. And when we think about that, we kind of go from a brand that's really sort of supported its community from survival perspective to, you know, so it goes from surviving to thriving. So you take a much broader approach to setting up your community to thrive in whatever their environment is, be that a physical perspective or be that an emotional perspective. I read up on the history of Canada Goose and I don't think a lot of people fully understand how it went from a single warehouse in Toronto into now a global publicly traded company with an incredible amount of not just products, but also thought leadership when it comes to things like sustainability. Would you mind just very, very briefly touching on some of the high points of the history of Canada Goose, its founding, and how it got to, you know, where the company is today in terms of being a leader in apparel and and now in footwear? I mean, I think that our guiding star has always been to do things authentically. 
So whether that's from when Danny's grandfather started to make workwear for people that were surviving in the harshest conditions in Canada's far north, to our intention around the way that we launched our footwear. And if we think about pivotal moments in what we have done as a brand, I think taking that kind of transition from being known as that park brand, you know, beyond the indigenous of Canada, the Inuit, who were the original parker makers, Canada Goose really put the parker on the map globally. Like when I first joined the brand about nine years ago, there was very little competition in the rest of the world. You know, the parker was not really understood. The downfield parker was not really something that was known, especially in uh, European markets. I think, albeit better known in the USA, but Europe and China, it was little known. So I think that Canada Goose really put that proposition of being able to have your own shelter with you all the time on the map. So that can sometimes become your worst enemy as you become stereotyped for only being able to offer that. So I think that another pinnacle moment was our ability and the permission that our consumers gave us to drive more meanings in their lives from a head to toe perspective. So, you know, when we went into footwear, we got permission to do that. Actually, our consumers assumed we were doing it before we even launched it. And I think also, you know, the commitment to be making product in Canada when many people were going offshore at that point to drive better kind of revenue. I think being very determined to always offer ultimate quality in a product that ultimately has to be able to save you in a certain situation. That's the difference with Canada Goose is that we make products that, you know, originally have been set up to save you in certain environments. So we have to continue to commit to that as we evolve and become a bigger brand. So I think the Made in Canada continue to make our products in Canada and 80% plus are still made there is really important. And then that commitment to you know, still investing in the north of Canada as well and really kind of ensuring that those communities that have been woven into the fabric of our DNA for, you know, nearly 60 years now are recognised and that we continue to keep that relationship with them. And then I think going into all of these different markets has been absolutely eye-opening for us as a brand and understanding as we learn, you know, the different relationships that our consumers have with us around the world and that what appeals to somebody in Canada may be different to what appeals to somebody in Shanghai and then, you know, evolving your brand to suit those needs. So I think authenticity, continuing to make in a place that we know will guard our craftsmanship, you know, our lifetime warranty and our commitment to the consumer and then our ability to evolve from a head-to-toe look and ultimately into this kind of performance light and luxury category. You know, that's been the other evolution. When I first joined the brand, we were an outerwear brand. We're now positioned as a performance luxury brand. And that evolution is unlocked with, you know, more products, but also with the experience that you offer the consumer because we were, once upon a time, 100% wholesale. And now that's completely flipped into a D2C business. So that ensures that you have to give a very different experience to your end of consumer as you would as a wholesale brand. You know, it's so interesting. One of the things that's always kind of struck me about the brand is its association. I hate to say pop culture, but let's just use those two words for now. But when you talk about authenticity, I mean, the, the brand has been 
authentically and sustainably, no pun intended, or maybe part of also pop culture and staying relevant longer than almost any other brand I am aware of. And at the same time is highly performative. So I suppose it started with being, you know, on film and television sets, you know, starting in the 2000s, both behind the scenes and of course also in front of the camera. How do you maintain that? Is it because of the authenticity? Because it's very easy to be like an it brand and you'd flame out in a few years, right? But we're talking like a span of 25 plus years. And it's not just Anderson Cooper, you know, at Times Square waiting for the ball drop, but it's noticeably everywhere. It's ubiquitous, but at the same time, you're able to maintain this mantle of performance luxury. How does that happen? <laughs> As you say, you know, we, we spoke about staying true and that's what we've always done. It's always really been important to us to swim upstream and not just doing that gratuitously, but ensuring that we don't get swayed by, it's almost like we don't get swayed by popular culture, that we continue to drive our meaning into popular culture as it is today. So, you know, the example that you use of film is a really great one. And it's because people know that we work and actually there's great upside because it looks damn cool as well. So that's really that beautiful equation of performance luxury. And, you know, what we found was that the greatest directors in the world, you know, the Wes Anders, where they were wanting to wear us, the Spielbergs were wanting to wear us because then they can just keep that absolute eye on what they're producing and directing. So, you know, this is another example of Live in the Open. It's really about enabling people to focus on their metier, whatever that happens to be, whether that be behind the lens or in front of the lens, and be their very best. And what happened was that all of the cast and crew were, were wearing us and then the really kind of like A-list talent would see it and borrow it in the breaks. And then they'd follow up afterwards and ask if they could actually wear our product in their everyday lives. And that's how that beautiful organic relationship happened with the film and entertainment industry. And then we, you know, we obviously have other relationships with film and entertainment through the different festivals like Sundance. We sponsor quite a lot of the women's programming with underrepresented voices. So it's a beautiful relationship that continues to flourish and we feel really honored to be a part of the fabric of film and entertainment. I love how you say you don't get swayed by pop culture. And again, it goes back to that authenticity thing. And I always got the sense through the years and especially in the last year or two that Canada Goose, actually, it probably goes back all actually to your partnership with Polar Bear International, but Canada Goose has always had a very strong moral compass. Of course, sustainability is part of that. But about a year ago, the company announced plans to go for free. And I thought that was phenomenal. Can you talk a little bit about, to the extent that you can, one, a sneak peek into kind of the discussions internally about that decision, how you made that decision, and how you're progressing against the vision against or towards becoming fur free? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thanks for addressing this. So, you know, Canada Goose has always used fur for its function. And that's always been the reason why we use it, because there's no better material to protect your, your face against frostbite. But you can continue to say that and try to have the longer conversation around its functionality. And we as a brand offer so much more like our product. It's just one facet of one of our products. 
So we're innovators. So we can find a way to continue to keep people protected in all environments. So that was the conversations that we said were, you know, we have got this material that's really important, but we've innovated once, we can innovate again. And that's what we continue to do because our center of gravity is on protection for the consumer. And we want to ensure that we provide them with what they want. So it was important that we listened and it was important that we evolved. So that's what we did. And yeah, you know, it, of course, it felt like a bit of a leap of faith because there's still such a high demand for Canada Goose parkas with fur, but it was the right thing to do. And so we did it. And the great news is that our new products, which are, you know, more of our seasonal products, transitional products, have massively uplifted year on year. We are getting much more demand for products like lightweight down and on our rainwear and obviously the footwear is also picking up. So and apparel too. So I think it just proves that consumers see us as a lifestyle brand, as a part of a way of living. And we didn't have a reliance on fur. We just used it as a, an ingredient to aid protection. And now that's part of our history. But it is important to say that we still really do respect the choices of the indigenous communities that continue to use it. Yeah, no, I think that's obviously very well said. And I think it's also important for consumers to know that it's more than just a commitment to becoming fur free, right? There's also a commitment to carbon neutrality just as an example, and the manufacturing process. Can you touch a little bit on that? I've had a lot of different companies and retailers and manufacturers and all sorts of businesses come on to talk about that. And one even went as far as to say they're going to be carbon positive, which I can't understand that. That's mm-hmm. for another day. Mm-hmm. But can you talk a little bit about the commitment to carbon neutrality as an adjacency or as part of this overall vision? I think we have to be extremely careful as brands to ensure that when we're talking about anything to do with sustainability, that we're really running it through right down to the very end to make sure that what we're saying is as impactful as the soundbite. And so, you know, coming back to authenticity, we've been working for years to, you know, really make sure that Canada Goose is extremely authentic when it talks about sustainability. And we're very lucky to have a great CSR department. And if I just bring it back to, you know, I I know that carbon neutrality and net zero is the topics that everybody's talking about, but it's really about how do you achieve that? I mean, we're, we're carbon neutral now, but, you know, net zero is so much more important. And the reason why that is, is because it really forces a organization to change their behavior and their systems and operations and actually thought process so the way that you go about your everyday each individual employee from you know how you think about planning your travel to how you consume in the office and at home through to the suppliers that you work with so it's really about as much as change management through the whole of your organization a commitment from every employee to go in the same direction as it is, you know, the the sustainability papers and the commitments you make as an organization. And, you know, for us, there are several different levers that we are pulling, actually, in order to to get towards our goals. We've got a platform that we call Human Nature, 
And that's really our commitment to keeping the planet cold and its people warm. That's somewhere that that's a place that we felt that we could play very heavily. So if you think about keeping the planet cold, we continue to really innovate within our products. And the best way that we can do that is by ensuring that we're we're using preferred materials. So, you know, I don't want to use words that don't actually stick. So what does that actually mean when we use preferred materials? So preferred materials are those materials that are actually sustainable. And I think a good example of this is as we developed the Kind Fleece, which is a new fleece that we've just launched. And a lot of people don't realize that many fleeces that are out there on the market are actually polymer based, like 100% polymer based, which means that they can shed microplastics, but ultimately they'll never disappear from the earth. So we saw that and we didn't feel that that was right and we wanted to launch a fleece. So we launched the Kind Fleece. So the fleece that we've launched is a 62% recycled wool and using a great fabric, which is actually wood-based called Tencel. And it's a biodegradable fiber that's actually made from wood. I never knew that you could wear wood. And Serena, which is, I think, comes from corn as well. So, and then it's actually the production of it. So it's not just the materials that you use, because sometimes you use natural materials. They take more in production to, you know, they use more water in order to actually develop them and make them into an end product. But actually, so you've got to look at your production cycle here as well. But this one actually uses about 20% less water and it's about 18% less greenhouse gas. And it's a beautiful product. And I think this is the next component. It's a beautiful product which will last. And that's the main thing that we look to do as a brand is create products that are enduring products that you can hand down, that have a great resale value. And, you know, if we can strike the balance between made of natural materials with the lowest sort of footprint from a production perspective, but lasts a longer time in terms of usage, then that's the balance that we're trying to strike as a brand through everything we do. And we can't do it all tomorrow because we have to do it properly. So I didn't realize that I just assumed all fleece was the same. I had no idea. And when you describe this process, it's just really what you're talking about is innovation and material science. A lot of people don't necessarily associate that with, you know, the apparel industry, let's just say, even as performative as this brand is. Do you think that there should be one day more of a sharing of this type of knowledge when it comes to material science that can achieve sustainability goals, but also be performative? Or do you think that these are just going to continue to kind of remain proprietary to different companies, but with the same kind of direction that there needs to be a balance between, you know, performance and sustainability? and making sure that that is kind of you know, documented and integrated throughout the supply chain and the whole manufacturing process. There's the reality of the commercial world, which is that businesses that invest in proprietary materials need to have credit for it. So I think there's a window that has to exist where that happens. And, you, you know, you can see that in uh, many different industries at the moment, that there's certain people that take credit for the initial innovation, you know, like in electric cars, for example. But then I think it's our moral duty to share because it's going to take everybody a lot of time to catch up to that same level if we don't. And if you believe enough in your design DNA, if you have a committed community, making those acts is only going to deepen that and is only going to draw more people towards your brand. 
So I think there is that balance between getting credit for the innovation, because ultimately we, we all have to think about the bottom line at some point. But it's also about then thinking about, and this is why we always say that human nature is an underpinning for us, because it goes through our mind with every action that we do and every decision we make as a brand. So in that case, yes, I think that should be the way that we as innovators in this industry go forward. And, you know, obviously fashion has, we do not call ourselves a fashion brand. We're not a fashion brand, we're a function brand. But I think this whole industry has a lot of thinking to do and a lot of looking in the mirror in order to change the way it works because it's not working right now for the planet. Yeah. And the other thing I find really interesting about you is that you're not just thinking about it in terms of manufacturing, but from a marketing standpoint too, and there are processes there that can also help you become more sustainable. I'm wondering if you can just touch on that because I know that, you know, when you're doing shoots now and whatnot, you're reducing your carbon footprint by, you know, 40%. And oftentimes brands only focus on manufacturing or design and innovation, but they also then forget about marketing and distribution and how they can also be good stewards of the environment there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm actually really passionate about this point. I'm glad you've asked me. And I'm, I hope that everyone that is listening could maybe take this forward into, into their work as well, because I think it's an unseen part of the chain. So, you know, as, as we were focusing on human nature, I really asked myself, you know, was it possible to, to manage no carbon through the creation of marketing collateral because you know if you think about the way the, you know when I first started in marketing you had sort of like bursts of activity you had your fall winter and you had your spring summer and it sort of happened in one neat package and now you're always on which means that there's somewhat of a content churn like we as brands are creating a lot of content and we have to watch out for that because it can become a bit addictive so I think that's another topic maybe for another day Aaron but as we're creating this content, we really need to think about the long tail of how we produced it. So we have started beta testing on, you know, like you say, on this you know, particular shoot that we did with Cole Sprouse on sustainable production. And as you say, we reduced it by 40%. And then we have also been for about a year or so tasking ourselves to always deliver sustainable windows. So our windows can either be totally broken down or they're recyclable and they're all made from sustainable materials. So I say very much beta testing that because you have to balance it with impact. So I wanted to make sure that we could achieve that, but still achieve the same impact because your retail theatre is, you know, really the storytelling and the allure that hooks people into your stores. And Many brands, uh, you know, use these floor-to-ceiling LED walls, for example. And, you know, you've been into any restaurant where there's a TV on, everyone's eye just draws towards it. So you're competing with what I would say is a lot of, you know, sparkle and light shows, which consume a very high amount of energy, which is not good. So you have to sort of work out how you can compete and you know, swim upstream again and create something even more compelling, but with a, a very, very sustainable outcome. So that's what we're working really hard on at the moment. And, you know, I would love, I could die happy knowing that I had actually sort of changed the way in which we think about producing marketing content. Yeah, no, I think that's a, an important lesson for everyone 
who's a marketer, which is almost everyone, right? And I think that that needs to be part of the forefront of our plans and also, you know, how we go about, you know, budgeting and costing out some of our, our efforts because it can get out of control. I hope one day that you're able to capture some of that and share those learnings that, you know, the ANA and other marketing, you know, and comms conferences, because I do think that if everybody took the same approach, that there'd be a lot of, you know, reduction of waste and, and whatnot. So I'm glad that, that you kind of took me through that. And I also was thinking a little bit about the brand's commitment to, you know, supporting and also spotlighting underrepresented communities, indigenous people into it. And I'm struck by the term goose people. Could you just take us through a little bit the story behind goose people and, and what that means? We have a, a huge and a very valued network of friends around the world. And, you know, if you come back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, which is living boldly and bravely through the, the ethos of living in the open, we basically make friends with people that have that philosophy and we're inspired by them and they inform us as a brand. And they're people that, you know, in, in the early days, it was people like, you know, Laurie Skreslet, who was the first Canadian to summit Everest. And now it's from working with people like Serene Fox, who is an Indigenous artist and activist and an extremely inspiring woman. And she's not, not just pioneering for an underrepresented community, which has such rich and a long legacy, but also women as a whole. So we've worked with Serene as a goose person for about four or five years now, and she has told some great stories through her lens that our community have been really truly inspired by. And then there's someone like, you know, Jordan Tutu, who's also Indigenous, who's a, a leader in his community. You know, he was an ice hockey player, a very well-known, and he retired a couple of years ago, but he went through a huge amount of strife with, you know, there's, with mental health and has been very, very honest with that plight in order to raise up his community, but also the general topic of, you know, normalizing mental health in communities so that people aren't alone with that topic. So we work with Aldo as well, so Aldo Kane, um, and again, he's, he, you know, on the face of it, he looks like this archetypal explorer with, you know, a rugged beard and strong, but actually he's really pioneering in what it is to be a man and redefining kind of masculinity in a way, again, speaking a lot about how you use the outdoors to revive yourself, both from a physical, but also from a mental perspective and normalizing mental health, especially within the military. Nothing against, you know, Philips. And by that, I mean, the electronics company, but I was just looking at your CV and I think you're coming up on 10 years or you next year will be your 10th year with Canada Goose, right? You joined in 2013 and <laughs> you're aging me. <laughs> well, not, not too much, but, but in a good way, in a good way. Also, I think I'm also just trying to accelerate through the rest of this year. So, you know, we, the last couple of years, we're just trying to get to the next year. Right. And, yeah, and put yeah. the rest of the years behind us. But <laughs> it just, it really struck me that you were with Philips, which is a consumer electronics company. And I know that, you know, you did a lot in consumer lifestyle there and marketing communications throughout Europe and whatnot. But to the outsider, it feels like a very large pivot or a shift. Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. could just talk a little bit about what are the similarities or what were the learnings there that you're able to bring to Canada Goose? And what is it that's different? Because to me, it's like night and day or yeah, night and day. 
yeah, and your perception would be right. I think for, for me that, you know, the rationale to go to an amazing, an amazing brand like Philips was to actually learn, learn something new. So I had historically been in, you know, smaller businesses, agency side, um, always producing something that I could be really, really passionate about. With Philips, what I saw was this Goliath of a business. And I understood that I had a lot to learn in terms of innovation because that brand, or I would say that Philips is a house of brands really, is a pioneer in innovation. And actually, even though at the end of the day, I realized that Philips, and I was there for you know four years or so, that I wasn't right for Philips. And I want to say it that way because it's a brilliant brand, it's a brilliant company, but I wasn't right for it. I learned so much. I learned about all of the different animals there are in the jungle. So it really helped me to understand people in business and the way they act. And, you know, I, I learned a lot. I learned what I liked and what I didn't like. So I learned that I'm not somebody who survives in a big blue chip company. So I kind of like, it diminishes, you know, my energy. But actually the great thing for me was working in Amsterdam because before that I'd really been in the UK and I hadn't really thought about the UK as being an island. And I looked back on it, I was like, wow, I've been on an island all this time. And it really broadened my global perspective. And I think that was one of the greatest gifts of Flip, but it's, is it's a truly international organization. So I took all of that, I took my understanding of people, my deeper understanding of myself and the environments that I do well in, and also it kind of fed my desire to live in different locations. And then from there, you know, the sky was the limit. And I, I had my first daughter there as well. So that's a gift that is priceless. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of geographies, you're talking about global and whatnot. I'm, of course, you know, I'm speaking to you from New York in the U.S. And I know that Canada Goose has very, very strong uh, footholds for decades, New York, Boston, Chicago. But it, it appears as though you're also, you know, marching west throughout the U.S. And I'm just kind of curious, outside of the changes in weather and climate and whatnot, what are the opportunities and the challenges for the brand in continuing to march west in the U.S. to expand? I think we opened in West Coast and uh, South Coast Plaza in California. And, you know, we've got intention to open three stores in the West, actually. And I think, you know, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is that we have transferred from being a brand which was specializing in deep cold and you know if you know deep cold then you can nail any other environment to really thinking about how you drive relevance in climates that might be windier might be humid so if you if you just perceive Canada Goose to be a weather specialist having you covered in whatever environment the world brings you then that probably gives you some indication for how we look to um, develop in markets that aren't traditionally cold weather climates. Final question, final question, I promise, because you've been so generous with your time. I know it's kind of asking, like, which is your favorite child, but what are your favorite product or products? And I know you just expanded into footwear as well, but are there certain Canada Goose products you just absolutely could not live without? Oh, that's really hard. Okay, I'm gonna give it a go. I have to say that I've absolutely fallen in love with our kind fleece. And 
It's probably for a few reasons. It's because, you know, it's honestly the first reason is because of the way it makes me feel. It's the softest, softest fabric that you can come across. And I know that it's good for the planet. And I also wear it inside. So I've always felt a little bit sad that I can only show my brand off when I'm outside. And actually, this kind of like takes you in and out of the house. It's like a you can wear it as a kind of like a house jacket as well and have the door open. And, and it looks pretty cool, too. So that's probably my new favorite. If you say what's my, <laughs> my new favorite. And then we have to go back to kind of like the expedition Parker. When I was up in the in the north of Canada, and I went to the flow edge, which is where the, the sea ice finishes and the sea begins. I never understood what it was to feel cold until I went to that place where literally if just a small amount of your skin is exposed, it, it will get frostbite. And that, that emotional feeling of that product working so hard for you and protecting you, that will probably stay with me forever. And it, it creates this kind of really emotional connection with a product, it kind of gives it a different life than just being just being a Parker. Well, I know how painful it was for you to answer that question, so I, I do appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> but I had to ask because people always want to know, you know, but now personally, I'm probably gonna go out and get some kind of fleece. <laughs> so I appreciate that tip. Listen, Penny, thank you so much for being on the show and for touching on so many components. I mean, we probably could have spoken for three or four hours about Canada Goose and its rich history and all the things that are that are going to be coming forward. But I look forward to seeing the expansion again across the West and new products being introduced. I'm going to go out and get myself some kind place and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Aaron. I've really enjoyed it and love to chat again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.